Christianity just doesn't seem rational to me. I just don't get it. Like, there, there's so much stuff that doesn't make any sense. It seems like it's really anti-women. As a woman, if I'm gonna be a Christian, does that mean I'm less than? Is it just me, or does the Bible seem completely outdated? outdated. All this stuff about slavery and women being mistreated. And it seems like Christians completely ignore science. Doesn't the Bible teach you to hate people who don't think the same way you do? Well, I want to say hi to everybody at all of our campuses, everybody joining us online, everybody here in this room. Uh, I love the beginning of a new year. Uh, I love the series that we're launching into. I'm so glad that you're going to be a part of it. We live in a time of increasing polarization, and that's especially true when it comes to religious faith. Um, people who are on the left tend to be concerned about masses of folks in the middle of the country who cling to gods and gun, uh, guns out of fear or resist good science or are intolerant towards other people. Um, those on the right often complain about elitists, kind of cultural gatekeepers, often in the media or in the academy, who tend to be disproportionately secularist and often hostile to faith. Sociologist named Peter Berger famously wrote that if Sweden is the world's most secular country and India is the world's most religious country, America is increasingly a country of Indians being governed by Swedes. Uh, we live in a fabulous part of the world that prizes technology and education and life of the mind, but where people sometimes assume that being a person of faith means that you must not appropriately value education or thoughtfulness. I was on a flight years ago, had a long conversation with the guy who was sitting next to me. He was quite secular, uh, but he had all kinds of questions. He wasn't sure where to take, how to raise his kids with a moral compass, and how to process the death of his father and what his own life was supposed to be about. Uh, but uh, he, was, he was thoroughly unchurched, and the longer that we talked, you know how this goes, the more and more clear his thorough unchurchedness was. And then after an hour or so, he asked the inevitable question, what do you do? And uh, I told him I was a pastor, and his eyes got real wide, and this is a precise quote. He said, I'll be damned. <laughs> and I said, well, I hope not, but let's talk about that. That'd be a fascinating subject of conversation right there. It's not just people of faith that doubt, skeptics doubt, doubters doubt their doubts. It's part of the human condition. We all trust in certain things and we all live with doubts. So we're launching this series called, That's a Great Question. We want to be a church where every person is respected and every question can get raised and dealt with in a real open, honest fashion. And our model for this actually is Jesus. That might surprise you, but in the gospel, sometimes people with doubts come. One man wanted help with his son, and he says to Jesus, yep, I believe in you, but, but I don't help my unbelief. And then another time, one of Jesus' own 12 disciples named Thomas had doubts about Jesus' own resurrection. And at the very end of the gospel of Matthew, after Jesus has appeared to them all, it says they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus never says to anybody, well, you doubted, so I'm done with you. You're useless to me. He, he deals with people with sensitivity and honesty and respect. And we want to be that way. So over the next several months, we'll, we'll look at questions like, uh, isn't the Bible anti-women that folks have? Or are all religions just basically saying the same thing? Or if they're not, then is 
does being a Christian mean that you're hostile or arrogant towards other faiths? Or how can we trust the Bible when it seems to embrace institutions like slavery? These are all questions Paul had to grapple with when he wrote to that church at Corinth so long ago in a letter that we're looking at through this year. And today, I want to lay a foundation for all of this series by asking a real basic question. Isn't faith irrational? Is it possible to believe deeply in reason and logic and learning and embrace faith in an unseen, miraculous, supernatural God? And I want to do that by looking at four real common ideas about faith that I think are actually misconceptions that get in people's way when it comes to belief in God. And then look at what does that mean for your life and for my life. So here we go. Four misconceptions. The first one is that faith actually means believing good things for no reason. Uh, Archie Bunker once said, faith means believing things that you would never believe uh, if they were not in the Bible. And this misconception is quite widespread. A Harvard professor, Steven Pinker, put it like this. Universities are about reason, pure and simple. Faith, believing things without good reason to do so, has no place in anything but a religious institution. Now, a friend of mine who works in universities says anybody who believes universities are about reason, pure and simple, has never sat on a faculty committee or watched how decisions actually get made in a university. But what I want to focus on is that definition of faith as believing things without a good reason. And the idea behind it is faith means believing what authorities tell you to believe regardless of the evidence, whereas reason means believing what the evidence tells you regardless of what authorities say. And I want to start by pointing out that actually for the first three centuries of its existence, the Christian faith spread and grew remarkably in spite of the fact that it had no authority at all. As a matter of fact, it was often illegal in the Roman Empire through those centuries to become a Christian. Sometimes that was the grounds for persecution or even execution. In other words, Christianity did not grow because authority was behind it. Often it grew because authority was opposed to it. At an unprecedented rate. It grew from around 1,000 Christians in AD 40 to maybe 10,000 by the year 100, to maybe 200,000 by AD 200, to maybe five or six million a century after that. Staggering growth. How did that happen? Well, clearly it wasn't because there were authorities that said, you have to believe this stuff. We get a little glimpse into its growth in the book of Acts, once, for instance, when Paul was in Athens, Athens was historically the center of Greek philosophy. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, kind of the pinnacle of human thought and logic and reason. And we're told in the book of Acts, Paul reasoned, and that word is chosen quite deliberately, not just preached, reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. Now, he's stepping out into the marketplace of ideas, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Now, Epicureans and Stoics were intellectuals of that day. They both held what we would call endowed chairs in Athens. Um, we associate Epicureans with gourmet meals in our day, but actually, 
They were among the very early believers of a common notion in our day, which was the claim that physical reality is all that there is, nothing other than Adam's physicalism. One of their sayings uh, ran like this, nothing to fear in God, there is no supernatural, nothing to feel in death, no afterlife, good pleasure can be attained, evil pain can be endured, and that's what life's about. It's a very old idea, prominent in Athens. And then there were the Stoics, uh, they, they gave preeminent place to reason and logic above emotion. And they believe that self-mastery, to be able to order your emotions and your inner world was the ultimate in human flourishing. So Paul, and many others like Paul, had this conversation in the marketplace of ideas, and many others, thousands of others like it. The Christian understanding of how things are, the human condition and so, did not grow by avoiding rational conversation on the basis of authority. It actually grew by inviting rational conversation, often uh, when it was opposed by authority. And Christianity's explanation of life, how did we get here? What is the human condition? What is the human purpose? Together with the community of unprecedented love, that taught that all of humanity was meant to be one together, that everybody was of equal worth, and there were actually solid grounds for that claim that created a new kind of foundation for virtues like humility and forgiveness and generosity, simply overwhelmed the ancient world in a way that all the money, authority, and power of Rome could not stop. And it's worth noting that universities themselves beginning with the very first ones in Paris and then about a century later with Oxford and Cambridge, were a Christian idea. They grew out of monastic communities, guilds of scholars that wanted to love God. The motto of Oxford University to this day is, the Lord is my light, taken from the Psalms. And then Harvard and Yale and Princeton. In fact, 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities in America came into existence by followers of Jesus who believe that all human beings ought to be trained in logic and reason so that all human beings would be able to reflect and love the Lord their God with all their might. Whether you agree with it or not, faith was never understood by the people who engaged it to be opposed to reason but to be tested by reason. Misconception number two is quite widespread in our day. You can't believe in science and believe in God. The idea behind this one is that back in the old days, people just didn't know how to explain stuff. They didn't know where thunder came from, so they said it's the god Zeus. They didn't know why the sun appears to go across the sky, so they said it's the god Helios in his little chariot. But now we have explanation for those things, and eventually we'll have scientific explanations for everything. So according to a quite common line of thinking, uh, science is the only really solid grounds for claims of knowledge. Now, a great problem with that is there are a lot of really critical questions human beings need to live that science cannot answer. Like, do people have equal worth? Like, is hope more valid than despair? Like, is there a purpose to life? And the claim that science is the only arbiter of knowledge is in fact not a scientific claim. There's no branch of science that has established that idea. It's it's a claim of faith. 
Maybe the ultimate mystery is, how come there's something instead of nothing? Why should anything exist at all? And it turns out that science cannot answer that question. And that can be kind of humiliating, kind of painful to our egos, because there's something about the belief that we can know and do everything that tends to exalt us. Old story, a group of scientists said to God, we no longer need you. We don't need you to explain or create life. We can clone. We can transplant. We can make life on our own. We challenge you to a man-making contest. We'll do it just like it says in the Bible. And God says, okay, you're on. And the scientists bend down to scoop up some dirt. And God says, oh, no, you go get your own dirt. (laughs) So that question of where did anything, why is there something rather than nothing? Some people think Christianity is irrational because it involves miracles like the birth of Jesus at Christmas or the resurrection, and that science has proven there is no unseen supernatural realm, and therefore there are no such things as miracles. But science has not proven that. And faith, from a Christian perspective, is not belief without evidence. It is commitment without half-heartedness. But it's based precisely on knowledge of God and God's ways. And this is especially important for us to understand at a moment when it seems like so many people, uh, particularly in the realm of politics, seem to just cling to beliefs based on very, very strong emotions. One of the great hymn writers in church history was a man named Isaac Watts. He wrote uh, Joy to the World, which we sing at Christmas time, and uh, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, a lot of great hymns. He also taught logic. He actually wrote one of the most widely used logic textbooks of his day. And through the history of the church, it has been great thinkers from Paul to Augustine to Aquinas the thinkers in the 20th century like Dorothy Sayers or C.S. Lewis, who have given the church its most important directions in its moments of greatest need. And it's precisely because knowing, knowing reality matters so much that restricting knowledge to the scientific method is such a mistake. Uh, One scholar, a philosopher named Ed Fieser, writes, it would be a little like saying that because a metal detector has greater success at detecting metal objects, coins and so, uh, that we ought to say, therefore, a metal detector can detect absolutely anything that there is to be revealed. He says, a metal detector will not detect everything. It won't find tennis balls. It won't find woolen scarves. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. That doesn't mean they're not there under the sand. It will detect what it's designed to look for. And science is that way. Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project and now heads up the National Institute of Health, one of the uh, most recognized, awarded scientists of our days and also a follower of Jesus, put it like this. Science is the only reliable way to understand the natural world, but is powerless to answer questions such as, what is the meaning of human existence? We need to bring all the power of both scientific and spiritual perspectives to bear on understanding what is both seen and unseen. And Christians, above all people, have an obligation to fearlessly and humbly follow the truth in every sphere, in every discipline, no matter what, 
a friend of mine used to say, Jesus would be the first person to tell you, you must follow the truth wherever it leads. The last thing Jesus would ever say is, don't read that book, don't ask that question, don't think that thought. Churches do that sometimes, not Jesus. He believed deeply in truth. And this leads now to a third misconception, and one I think that can do the most damage to our lives, which is no one can really know moral truth or spiritual truth. So agnosticism, skepticism is the best response, the best posture. Uh, often in our day, faith is just relegated to tradition or preference or opinion, but not knowledge. It's thought you can know stuff about chemistry or math, but not when it comes to God, not when it comes to morality. It is sometimes claimed that all religions say basically the same thing and that they simply deal in opinion or tradition or preference or so. But one of the most important and frequently used words in the Bible is the word knowledge, and it is at the core of Jesus' mission, whether you think he's right or wrong. Jesus said this one time, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And it is not an accident that the last half of that statement, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free by Jesus, is written on more walls of more universities than any statement any other human being ever made. Jesus, again, whether you think he's right or wrong, he claimed to know, see. He didn't just walk around giving dispensable advice, and neither did any other great religious leader. He claimed to know that what is most real is God and God's kingdom, and therefore you can trust him. That the good life is being loved by and alive to this God, that the good person is one who is thoroughly immersed in love to will the good for God and for other people, that you can grow to become a good person by becoming a learner, a student, a follower of Jesus himself. See, this is not just a tradition. This is a body of Christian knowledge, and it has not been proven untrue. Jesus knew that a well-lived life depends on sound knowledge about what matters most. So let's talk for a minute about what it means to actually know something. A uh, couple of questions. First question, just tell me what you think. Can you believe something and be wrong about it? Of course you can. My wife does it all the time. <laughs> she would say the same thing about me, and she would be deeply, deeply right. Of course you can believe something and be wrong about it. Second question, can you know something and be wrong about it? No. No. By the definition of knowledge, see. Now, knowledge is something different than feeling very, 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 very certain about it at the top of my voice. To know something means that I am representing it, I'm thinking about it, I'm handling it, I'm talking about it as it actually is for good reason, not just based on a lucky guess. That's what it means to know. Now, what counts as knowledge is hotly contested in our day because to have knowledge means to have authority. And so it has become uh, very politicized. We don't say to somebody else, 
uh, we'll say to other people, don't impose your opinions on me. We do not say, don't impose your knowledge on me. Why not? Because knowledge, reality, truth, will impose itself on me whether I want it to or not, whether I believe in it or not. Dallas Willard used to say that pain is what you experience when you run into reality, because reality is just there. And guys, we live in a day when, when people are often urged to consider that life's most important issues, what is a good person? How do I become a good person? What is the purpose of my existence? We live in a day when people are increasingly urged to consider life's most important issues as matters of opinion or preference or tradition or subjective value, but not things an educated person could ever claim to know. And for most of the history of the human race, in the ancient world, including certainly Israel, that began the belief that education began. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Him shall you love with all your heart. To, to people in the ancient world, the idea that education does not address knowledge about what matters most would have been perceived as a train wreck. In our day, in other words, where knowledge is most desperately needed, it has become often apparently unavailable. And the result is that people, often real bright, quite educated people, are plagued by skepticism and cynicism and confusion and uncertainty and doubt and eventually despair. By contrast, like a light coming through the gloom, the biblical writers insist that what is being presented is knowledge. My people perish for lack of knowledge. Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. Faith and knowledge are not opposed to one another. The gospel writer Luke said he very carefully investigated his writings so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, this does not, as we will see, legitimate, uh, arrogant, dogmatic postures. This does not mean that Christians are untroubled by questions and doubts. I sure have them. Paul put it like this, now we know in part, we see through a glass darkly. It's kind of fascinating to me. A biologist named David Bresch has published a book just this year called Through a Glass Brightly. And he's deliberately contrasting his language with Paul's language. He's claiming that science now has shown us through a glass brightly what religion through a glass darkly could not show us. In particular, this is a quote, that the reality that life in general and our individual life in particular is inherently meaningless. But if life is inherently meaningless, what's the point of writing a book about it? More than that, name a single empirical study in a single peer-reviewed journal, in a single branch, in any of the sciences that claims to have discovered that life in general and individual life in particular is inherently meaningless. 
Where is any study in any of the sciences, in any article, in any, that, would, that would present the meaningless of individual and cosmic life as a scientific finding? And of course, of course, of course, you will not find it anywhere. And yet a sentence like this gets presented as if it is documented scientific truth. And people, we all just think, well, I, I guess somebody's found out something. And it crushes the human soul that needs to know. There is a little phrase about knowledge that your mom used that has deeper meaning. Your mom would say to you, you know better. You know better. Such a fascinating phrase. You shouldn't have stolen that candy. You shouldn't have bit your sister. You shouldn't have lied. I don't know who did it when you know because you're the one that did it. Your mom didn't say, you believe better or you prefer better. You know. And your mom was exactly right. You call your mom after this service and you tell her, Mom, you are dead right. But in our day, often in a very well-intended desire to avoid sounding judgmental or arrogant, often in a very well-intended response to people often religious people, often Christian people, who do thunder on in real dogmatic authoritarian ways. In our day, the idea that we are capable of moral knowledge is hotly contested. A British philosopher, Mary Midgley, has written a book, fascinating title, Can't We Make Moral Judgments? She took the title from an actual moment in one of her philosophy classes when a very bright student raised her hand and said, but surely it is always wrong to make moral judgments. In other words, we can have knowledge about math or physics or geology, but morality is a matter of opinions. I have mine, you have yours. It's relative to somebody's culture or preferences or upbringing, and therefore you can't impose your moral judgments on somebody else. The problem, of course, is that the statement, it's always wrong to make moral judgments, is itself a moral judgment. Refutes its own self. If it's true, it can't be true. We simply cannot live or choose, or raise children, or have a political society, or navigate through life without moral knowledge. Knowing right from wrong is essential to our humanity. And this gets very personal. Michael Cohen is a name some of you will have seen in the news in the political arena recently for confessing to crimes and wrongdoing. And he was asked by an interviewer if he could go back to his old self before he started this long string of wrongdoing, what would he say to his old self? And putting aside questions of sincerity or politics, his answer, I thought, was very striking. He said he would go back to his old self and say, what were you thinking? You knew better. You knew. You knew. In other words, it is possible for us to know something but deceive ourselves or play tricks with our mind to distract or forget in ways that enable us to do what we want to do as if we did not know what we really know. And the Apostle Paul, who although he lived 2,000 years ago was quite brilliant about the mind and the nature of knowledge, put it like this. Uh, when it comes to human beings, this includes you and me. For although they knew God, they knew God, 
they knew. They neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And every mom has spoken that to every child. You knew better. We know better. So now this week is one real practical application of this message. Rather than just worrying about my doubts, I might ask myself, where am I not living up to what I know? Where might my future self come back and tell me, you knew better? In my finances, or in my family, in my work, in my words, with my money, my sexuality. Search your heart. What do you know better? Another practical note. Uh, if you're looking for a place to explore these questions uh, with a kind of interactive environment, we have a course coming up called Alpha where you can dig real deeply in a conversational way through a lot of these questions. Uh, it's going to start at the end of this month. If that would help you, man, take advantage of it. If you know somebody who uh, wrestles with this stuff, you could pray for them, invite them to be a part of it. But this practical side of things leads me to one last misconception. And this one is prominent inside the church as well as outside the church. And it's the idea that Christianity is about being right. Now, being right is a good thing. It helps you deal with reality. But it's not the best thing. It's actually kind of a dangerous thing. When you were in school, did you ever sit next to the kid in class who was right all the time? Some of you were that kid. Many of you here in this room were. And it's kind of a hard burden. Real smart guy said once that it's actually hard to be right a lot and not hurt other people with it. One of the amazing things about Jesus is he was always right, but he never hurt anybody with it. Now, his words often caused pain, often deliberately. But they were never the words of a puffed-up, smart-guy ego who belittled people with lower IQs. He could be with children and slaves and beggars and lepers and the uneducated and the illiterate, and he never made him feel slow. He never made him feel stupid. They didn't look like that to him. One of the reasons I believe Christianity to be true is that it understands the relationship between knowledge and love so profoundly. The church at Corinth was filled with people who suffered from smartest guy in the room syndrome. It's like the Bay Area tends to be. And Paul wrote these words. We know that we all possess knowledge. That was kind of a saying in Corinth where they love knowledge. We all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. And man, there's a world of knowledge in that sentence right there. But whoever loves God is known by God. There was a dad who was a real, real, real smart guy. And then he had a baby, a little boy, and it was the weirdest thing. That little guy didn't really care how smart his dad was at all. He was not impressed. He was at a grocery store one time, this dad, and the little three-year-old guy was fussing and whining and cranky and upset and angry and obnoxious and wouldn't stop. 
And his dad is whispering quietly, it's okay, Lucas. We'll be done soon, Lucas. You can handle this, Lucas. And a woman hears him and says, you're so patient with your son, Lucas. And the man says, no, my son's name is Wendell. I'm Lucas. <laughs> Real smart guy. Doesn't know what to do with a three-year-old. And so, because he doesn't know what to do, he starts to sing his son a song. And this is kind of a goofy song with a made-up melody, and he makes up the words as he goes along. I'm so glad you're my son. I'm so grateful I get to be your dad. I love seeing your face. It makes me happy when you smile. I love sometimes at night when you don't even know to go in and looking at your little body when you're sound asleep. I love dreaming of what you might be one day when you grow up. I want you to know that whatever happens, wherever you go, whatever you do, I will always love you. I will always be your daddy, and you will always be my boy, and you will never be alone. And Wendell gets real quiet. His eyes get real wide. His face gets real calm. His heart gets real still. And he listens to that wonderful song all the way out to the car. And his daddy puts him in the car seat in the back and then gets in the front to drive off. And Wendell says, sing it to me again, daddy. <laughs> sing it to me again. Because you never get too old for that song. Richard Foster, who writes about this, says, that's the song that we were all born to hear. And no other song can take its place. And in the end, God will not ask me how much I knew. He will ask me how much I loved. You too. We were made to love. We know this. We know better. We know. And this is why we have congregations. We want little outposts of love, of knowledge about what matters most up and down the Bay Area so that people can know they are loved, so they can hear the song. So uh, next week we'll look at the, the question, is the Bible anti-women's? Very important subject. Very excited about that message. This week, go sing the song. We are not here to show everybody that we're right. We're here to show everybody God's love. Would you pray together with me? Thank you, God, that we might know that we are loved. And I pray that you'll help everybody listening to these words, everybody who wrestles with doubts and questions and fears and hopes and uncertainty, skepticism, cynicism, maybe despair. I pray that you will add to our faith knowledge. Thank you that life is worthwhile. Thank you that we are loved. May you make that love flow through us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.